0: to the International History Now podcast series. In this series, we'll be inviting guests to explore topical questions and to share their thoughts, drawing on experiences and research from around the world. My name is Dina Gusenova, and I'm a historian teaching at the LSE in London.
1: And I'm Yorvos Yanakopoulos, uh, and I teach history and politics at City University of London and NYU in London. And in the first two episodes, we will be discussing aspects of the ongoing debate on the so-called monument crisis, struggle for the symbolic recognition of black lives in public spaces.
0: So the story begins with the killing of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, by a white policeman in the United States on the 25th of May, 2020. People throughout the world were shocked by the brazen murder of this man in front of a running camera, especially since Floyd's minor offense occurred in the context of struggles to keep his livelihood amid the coronavirus crisis. Different political movements have been seeking to draw public attention to the prevalence of systemic racism. Structural inequalities may be hidden, but protesters have tried to make racism more visible to the public eye, targeting monuments and public spaces which honor figures associated with racism, colonialism, and slavery.
1: On 7 June 2020, the 19th century statue of Edward Colston uh, was spontaneously thrown into the river by a group of people during an anti-racist protest. Colston was a 17th-century merchant from Bristol involved in the slave trade, but celebrated as a virtuous citizen. Ten days later, in retaliation, and right-wing groups massed the 18th-century gravestone commemorating an African uh, living in Bristol, one of the few of its kind in the UK, prompting fears for uh, more such attacks. Meanwhile, local authorities boarded up statues of public figures, such as Churchill, Mandela and Gandhi, ahead of upcoming protests.
0: So we are here now to discuss some of the major themes arising from this monument crisis. And one is the topic of democracy, that uh, this crisis erupted in a context that was perhaps slightly unexpected. So one, one could have expected that such controversies over monuments would be resolved by democratic means, but clearly this has not been possible so far, hence the violence. And uh, we want to discuss this with a political theorist, Carlo invernizzi Acetti, who has worked on, on democracy, uh, fascism, but also written on cultural politics of memory in modern Italy.
1: Carlo, many thanks for coming to the
0: programme.
1: I'd like to start by uh, gathering your thoughts on uh, a lively debate that has recently erupted in Milan about a monument. What did you make of that?
2: In the case that has recently erupted after the Black Lives Matter protests started following George Floyd's murder in the United States, there is a statue that was erected, I think, just within the past 10, 20 years in what were previously called Giardini Pubblici di Milano, the public gardens of Milan, were renamed by a right-wing administration, the Indro Montanelli Gardens. And in the context of that renaming, they were erected the statue of Indro Montanelli. Indro Montanelli was a venerable Italian journalist uh, who, however, had a venerable, uh, more than venerable, I should probably say, venerated Italian journalist in the sense that he is considered one of the great Italian journalists of the 20th century. He uh, has been the director of the main Italian newspaper, the Corriere della Sera. He founded other newspapers, including Il Giornale and La Voce. And he was always considered, when I grew up as a child, he was considered like, if you wanted to be a journalist, this is who you should look up to. And obviously, like many Italians who lived through fascism, he had, uh, during the time of fascism, participated in the activities of the regime. He had been a soldier. And the part of that history that became controversial now was not widely known. At least I, as a child, played in those gardens. I didn't know that that that, that history. What emerged was that during the context of the war, uh, the colonial war that Italy do, did in 1934 to 1936 in uh, what was then called Abyssinia, he had apparently bought uh, a child and quote-unquote, married her. Uh, And he admitted to this subsequently in 1969 in a television interview and was highly already criticised in the 60s for this. But in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, it emerged that we too in Italy have a statue of somebody who has a um, problematic colonial past and uh, the statue was defaced and now there are calls to take it out like many of the statues that have been criticised. And in Italy, the positions are exactly along party lines, essentially l- like, like in like most uh, other countries, like in the UK, for instance. The right has said, no, we cannot efface the past. The past is what makes us. We are the product of our traditions, what I call the passeist position. Interestingly, the center left, the government, which is in power at the time, has adopted a position similar to the British Labour Party, which is distinguishes between form and substance. On the substance, they agree the statue is problematic. They agree that Montanelli maybe ought to be, his historical legacy ought to be reviewed, but they disagree with the procedural way in which the statue was defaced. We cannot accept vandalism. And then the protesters themselves obviously don't care about the procedure, and on the substance, they say we should get rid of the statue.
1: Now that, you know, another side of, of the past of this revered journalist has come into being, and when you go back to that square, when you walk around the, the, the park, how will this you know, affect the way you understand the space?
2: So for me, it's interesting, uh, the question you pose, because I grew up in playing in those gardens when they were not called the Montanelli gardens. They were called, in what in my opinion is a much more beautiful name, public gardens. While I'm maybe not necessarily in favor of now going back and abolishing the statue, The fact that I grew up there and saw that it was changed to Indra Montanelli Gardens makes it, for me, easier to imagine a a further change in the way we name and relate to this space. The broader question, I guess, I have
1: uh, here concerns the boundaries between what we could call a symbolic reappropriation of meaning in a monument when people are breaking the norms to make something more reflective of, of who we are and where do we draw the boundary between that and between what we can consider or what is considered uh, as uh, an act of distraction and an act of violence. And this also brings in the question of violence.
2: I will not, I believe that contextualization is the right answer. In, in the main square of the city of Bolzano, there is a building that was built during the fascist era called Casa del Fascio, which has on its main facade a, f- a frieze celebrating the victory of fascism. That, and uh, there is in, on this frieze a bas-relief of Mussolini himself on horseback, going over the history of the triumph of fascism over all adversities. And there is the slogan, Credere, obbedire, combattere. Believe, obey, combat. And this had been a very controversial monument for a very long time. It was not sure what to do about it. In 2011, the the national government decided to renovate the main square, Bolzano, and in that context asked the municipality or the provincial government to come up with a solution of what to do with the freeze. So what they did, and in my opinion, this is a good model of how to get these things right, called a national competition or uh, opened up a competition of over ideas of how to as they put it contextualize and diffuse the monument there were over 500 proposals open to anybody a uh, commission composed of representatives of civil society and they chose amongst these five that were then submitted to the municipal government, out of which they, ch- they chose the one that was actually implemented, which was to contextualize the mom- monument by adding a, a lead uh, sentence on top of the frieze, which is in three languages, a sentence by the philosopher German philosopher Anna Arendt, German Jewish philosopher. This, the quote is, nobody has the right to obey. And which is obviously in direct dialogue with the slogan the fascist slogan that is written on the on the frieze itself credere obedire combattere believe obey combat so it's kind of a superposition of a further slogan on top of that and the idea is, is is that neither to destroy the monument nor to preserve it but to recontextualize it and change its meaning so now nobody dares to challenge it except the fascist or the neo-fascist party of uh, uh, Bolzano, which is called Casa Pound. It's an Italian, it's a national party, but they have a base in Bolzano. Since then, they have actually protested this because it got the attention. And they, in fact, staged a protest in which they added a third layer of text on the text. So there's the frieze. Then there is the lead inscription. Nobody has the right to obey. And on top of that, they added a graffiti saying Taliban. And what the fascist has been saying is that this act of recontextualizing the monument was a Taliban act of destruction of the memory of the the monument. But one of the other things we can learn from the Bolzano example is that contextualization cannot happen through a top-down technocratic process where a few experts decide how the appropriate contextualization should take place. That, in fact, in my opinion, reproduces the error of how many of these statues went up in the first place, which were right-wing administrations in a top-down way deciding to interpret history how they like it.
0: I'm really concerned by this theme of this threat to democracy from the violence of minorities. I suppose that story of racism and exclusion, including in public spaces, it goes back a long way in democratic societies, as well as non-democratic ones. Particularly in the light of the history of racism. I mean, if one thinks of Jim Crow America, I mean, it's sort of a democratic society after the American Civil War, after the Unionists have won, as it were, the anti slavery party has won, and yet you get racial segregation laws passed by democratic procedures,
2: supposedly. So, one of the interesting things about Bolzano was that the procedure through which the recontextualization took place was itself democratic, open, uh, so you, they opened to civil society, to proposals coming from below, had a very transparent process of decision of how to, al- to decide amongst the proposals, uh, and then voted uh, in a democratic way through a process of representation. We're all happy when we take down the statue of a racist, but when then uh, neo-Nazis deface Jewish tombs, we all say, oh, it should never happen. There needs to be and it and cannot just be because when we agree with them, uh, with, with those who deface, it's fine. And when we disagree, it's not fine. Therefore, there has to be a good procedure for recontextualizing these things. Here's where I do agree with the position adopted both by the mayor of Bristol and by uh, Keir Stammer, the leader of the Labour Party, drawing a distinction between procedure and substance. The mayor of Bristol said, uh, Marty, Marvin Rees I am of Jamaican descent, I find this statue insulting, I would be in favor of removing it, but there needs, it cannot happen through an act of vandalism. Mon- monuments commemorating Jewish people or black people, you, you, if you want to say no, the right does not have a right to deface those, it is because of the procedural grounds. And I don't condone vandalism either on the left or on the right. Many people are feeling slightly kind
0: of helpless observing the situation because it seems the structures of representation for minorities particularly need constant revision. So in the case of Bristol, my understanding is that there was some kind of bureaucratic time lag um, and that people who are now angry actually did not feel adequately represented by the procedures
2: which were in place to revise these things. Of course, there are so many Uh, forms of misrepresentation, systematic biases in the way representation works, institutionalized forms of racism. I agree with all of that. But the correction for those systems cannot be an act of violence. I think one can refer to Tocqueville here. He says, democracy makes terrible decisions, but it is the only regime that has the possibility of correcting itself so you have to go through democracy to improve the democratic
0: system. listening to the French band Sniper and their 2003 track, Pourquoi?
1: What do you make of the example that Carlo used uh, and he wrote about uh, with the, in regard to the monument in Bolzano?
0: I find it on the surface very appealing. I think it's a, indeed a very uh, interesting, powerful mechanism to show the multiple layers. I am concerned that maybe um, Uh, maybe there will be elements of self-censorship, maybe some people or some artists coming from certain backgrounds will not necessarily make proposals.
1: What I'm not so certain about is whether an act of inscribing, for instance, something in a monument, in a way that it breaks the norms, can be seen only as an act of vandalism that needs to be uh, condemned.
0: The second theme is this issue of language, the language of violence and the perception of violence. To what extent is it the attack on the monument itself that's violent or is the presence of the monument that some, uh, that people might perceive as, as violent. And that we want to discuss with an art historian who um, specializes on uh, the history of the destruction of art, Nozika El who works at Pompeo Fabra University in, in Barcelona.
1: In many cases where we have attacks in uh, artefacts, uh, the question in the label of vandalism comes up. So I was wondering about your thoughts on you know, how we use these terms like vandalism to describe what happens to various you know, artefacts or monuments.
3: Attacking an image is presented as a really radical and black and white act, you know, an act of fanaticism. It usually is a lot more complex and a lot more self-contradictory Using the sort of commonly accepted tradition, you know, sort of definition of vandalism today, vandalism is often defined as a mindless act, right? So something that mindlessly, irrationally, unnecessarily destroys something that is beautiful and worthy. And I think the fact that this is being bandied about so much when it comes to attacks on images is actually really dangerous because It hides the fact that a lot of attacks on images, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them are meaningful. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with the ideology behind it. So for me, the word vandalism is used much too easily and it sort of obliterates meaning. Calling something vandalism is sometimes a bit lazy because you don't actually look at the motivations of the people who attack the image.
0: Would you be equally critical of using the word when it comes to attacks from the right?
3: I think ultimately, if you use the word vandalism in whichever group you're talking about, you are basically hiding or maybe even obliterating a whole wealth of meaning that is expressed in this act. And you will never understand it if you just do it away as vandalism.
1: Should we do away with vandalism as a legal category as well as a legal you know, concept in a way.
3: I'm sure there is vandalism perpetrated every day, also against images. What I'm just saying is that we shouldn't jump to that conclusion that it's vandalism so quickly, because then we immediately assume it's mindless and we leave aside the the message and the motivations behind it. We immediately close off any understanding. So to abolish it wholesale as a legal category, no, but I do think we should be less quick to use the term. So
0: I, I just want to say I'm really grateful to you for highlighting the term itself, because I think one can also think a lot about the biography of such a word. And it has such a complicated biography in a way. Think about the French Revolution, where it was kind of coined the thing that vandals do by, by this prelate Henri Grégoire. He kind of lists all these attacks on libraries, on artworks and so on. and. And coins this term, which which becomes so influential. He he's in favor of the republican order. He he's a, a liberal in that sense. The question is, okay, where does he get this term? And it's it's clearly a reference to the the history of the barbarians invading Rome and the, these Gothic tribes from the north coming sort of to destroy Roman heritage. That, so there's all this kind of evocation of that of that background, suggesting that the the revolution needs to protect its the heritage of um, the regime that it's seeking to destroy. But he also uh, later comes out as an abolitionist. He also writes a kind of um, manual on so-called Negro
3: literature, and he enters into the debate on racial equalities and so on. What I found in my research is that Grégoire did a bit of a U-turn because he was apparently implicated in actions against images during the French Revolution, as many people were. And then after the French Revolution, he made a sort of 180 turn. He was like, oh, terrible, revolutionary vandalism, which was sort of overall the common sentiment just after the French Revolution, and they blamed a lot of the actions against images that had been taken by the French government at the time, and blamed it on English spies, for instance, or in other elements. So I think when it comes, I think that is one of these examples showing how incredibly self-contradictory attacks against images are, and why you have to sort of understand the motives of people who attack images, because they can completely switch Their approach, depending on the way the political winds blow. And when it comes to today's situation, the question is obviously this slippery slope argument, right? If we remove these monuments, what's next? Um, And, you know, indeed, will we destroy the museums? Will we destroy churches? Will we destroy... Houses that were built by dubious people will we destroy an entire architectural style that was influenced by colonization, where does it end? And I get where that fear comes from. And at the same time, I find it really false and really twisting what is happening here. Because it's not that people who are currently targeting and I say that between inverted commas you know acting against monuments it's not like they want to erase culture or that they want to erase history they are just saying the way these sculptures and these monuments are placed in public space right now without any explanation or with insufficient explanation and with a massive lack of counter monuments or monuments that tell other stories is not right right. And how is it possible that that narrative has been in public space like this? That is not the same as saying we want to destroy it and we want to have, you know, a blank slate and destroy everything. All they say is we do not want this part of history sanitized and glorified in our public spaces.
1: If these acts of um, quote-unquote vandalism, Ascribing a different kind of meaning to, to to certain artifacts that brings out a dark side, if you will, of them. If these acts in the public space, you know, uh, they, they do have a you know a tangible result. Doesn't this make up for an argument for uh, not removing, uh, uh, you know, artifacts from the public space, but rather? allowing for uh, uh, these kinds of acts to exist. And in that way, one can see a richer
3: picture. I don't think there is one solution, to be honest. And I don't think protesters want one solution. The sort of prime position these monuments have enjoyed in public space has gone on long enough. And, you know, there have been actions for many years. You know, there was a wave of attacks against uh, Confederate statues a few years ago. And it didn't change anything. Or you have committees, you know, talking about an inscription uh, to sort of add context to a monument. And then the inscription never comes because they cannot agree. So a lot of the things that are happening right now, I think, also come out of an impatience and about having the momentum and the support to finally make a change. It seems that this whole statue... um crisis
0: is particularly acute for democracies in a way because it's, nobody is particularly surprised that you know, in authoritarian regimes, even at the time when they get weaker, that such a violent confrontation occurs.
3: I think we have the idea because we, we are so proud of freedom of expression and we are so proud of culture that we sort of see freedom of artistic expression as a hallmark of the superiority of Western democracies. And to me, the fact that these monuments were left up for such a long time without any context is, to me, it sort of exposes the inherent intolerance and the self-satisfaction that we see in a lot of Western democracies saying, well, we've got it all figured out. Graffiti is illegal. It is defined as dirt and as a criminal act. And the question is ultimately is, who decides what our public space looks like and who decides what stories are told in our public spaces? So sometimes you need a sort of illegal act to, you know, to reach a legal change. I think we are also operating in the West in a sort of paradigm of conservation and of freezing time. So the idea that the best conservation is to make something look exactly like it did when it was just made. So brand new, no cracks in the veneer, everything clean, you know, untouched, and anything that affects it, because of weather or because of graffiti or by, you know, changing the location or by modifying it is almost automatically seen as defacement.
1: How can we make sense of what has happened to Parliament Square right now? These boxes, the monuments that uh, somehow hide them?
3: The boxing in of Winston Churchill, I don't know if the intention was to turn it into a visual spectacle. You know, the argument was also given, also by the London mayor, that boxing in of statues is a relatively standard procedure and it happens ahead of, you know, moments where violent demonstrations are expected. So he sort of said, this is business as usual, don't read too much into it. Most of all, it makes it massively conspicuous. I don't think anybody looked so carefully and was so aware of Churchill's monument until they couldn't see it anymore.
0: Would you expect in an ideal scenario that... um... A kind of um, ideal government would say, well, we'll just leave the graffiti racist on and uh, we will maybe put an additional plaque on saying this graffiti was added on this particular date in June 2020 in the context of Black Lives Matter protests.
3: I don't think it would stay in the way it is right now because you you get people with sponges trying to wash the graffiti off, you know, and then you have people who want to add their graffiti, they want to add plaques. So the idea that Churchill would be frozen like this with just that one graffiti on it, I think is a complete illusion. I think we'd get a sort of Monty Python-esque scene of people constantly adding and changing and erasing the graffiti. Um which could be a fascinating act in itself, you know, the different narratives of history. I'd actually be quite interested to see what would happen, almost like a social and cultural experiment, to see what would happen with this statue. But I don't think we can exclude that it might lead to dangerous situations. I'd love this monument to be exposed to all the elements and to all the narratives that exist. But in practice, I wonder how you'd be able to lead that into safe paths for everybody.
1: How can we rethink the kinds of monuments and whether we need really monuments in our cities or in our future cities.
3: To be truthful, I do see a function of monuments. And I find it fascinating, especially when the sort of traditional template of a monument of, you know, pedestal, horse and dude on top of the horse or woman, whatever, when it's completely changed. And when you get monuments that are entirely different, that are immersive, that are strange, that are abstract, and that experiment with it's a completely different experience i do think that these uh places are really really important because ultimately we do want our public spaces to reflect who we are and i definitely think that the paradigm of what a monument is even though it is changing it should change faster
1: 's point about having our public spaces as spaces that reflect who we are, I feel is a very powerful point. And this also uh, takes me to to the question of, of vandalism and and as she has noted, it has been a nefarious concept and is every act of intervention in an existing monument an act of violence as Carlos seemed to suggest. These are, for me, open questions.
0: Carlo clearly is prepared to use the term vandalism for both the left and the right, uh, and he thinks it's actually important. I mean, I I can see that he's using it as a legal category uh, primarily, but I I saw there was a a bit of a tension, I suppose, in in their views. And the other point I thought that was interesting and was raised in the discussions was this idea of representing emotions in public spaces, including public spaces in which democratic societies live. So we're sort of used to the dominance of pride as a kind of emotion that's represented by the man on horseback and maybe sadness with obelisks. But but perhaps it's time to diversify the language of emotions in public spaces, maybe monuments to shameful things. I mean, some societies are more used to them. And this brings me to a little announcement of our second episode in which we'll be exploring the global dimensions of the monument crisis and venturing to discuss comparisons between two post-socialist societies, Poland and Tanzania, we'll be talking about the parallels between so-called decommunization and decolonization, the new nostalgia for socialism and commemorative practices in uh, Tanganyika, post-colonial Tanzania and post-socialist Poland. So please tune in, but for now... Thank you to our guests, Carlo and Vernizia Cetti and Nozika Elmecki. And thanks for tuning in. We hope to meet you again in the next episode.